a Pulp MX Network production. The only athlete-to-athlete podcast in the sport. Questions from a different perspective. The hard questions you want answered about training, riding, and being a professional athlete. Not only in motocross, but in other sports realms as well. Welcome to Shifting Gears, the Zach Osborne Podcast. How's it going, guys? Here we are, Shifting Gears, Episode 8. We are currently uh, four times the amount of episodes that Jason Wygant said we would get, so I'm pretty pumped about that. And um, stoked to have Talon Volan on today. Um, we're here at Hangtown for the first round of the Motocross Nationals, and uh, he's a NorCal legend and local to the track, so um, he was here with his kid uh, racing amateur day, and I asked Talon if he would like to do a podcast, and he said, heck yeah, so thanks for ha- uh, for coming on, Talon. Yeah, Zach, I really, I really appreciate the opportunity. It's podcasts are getting pretty popular and it's great to you know it's great to have the opportunity to to talk about you know racing in the past and, and share your story and so i look forward to it awesome thank you so much dude um i was actually doing a little bit of research the other day and i read um a where are they now uh from racer x from 2013 i believe something sure. like that yeah um and i never realized that you quit motocross and were straight to a Cherby's. like that's pretty crazy that you've had basically two jobs your whole life yeah, you know, that's that's one thing that um, my dad instilled in me is, you know, whatever you do, do it 100%. And, um, you know, when I when I did have that moment where uh, I decided, hey, you know what, it's time to stop, um, I immediately went down to a Cherby's when I was in Europe racing in Italy and um, found a deal with them. I, I knew they potentially needed help. They were my sponsor. It worked out perfectly, and I ended up running a racing division for about 10 years and then uh, currently now run all sales for Cherby's. Um, in the U.S. now up to 2019. So it's been uh, 16 years with the guys. Uh, it's crazy. That's awesome, dude. And, and I also read that you're fluent in Italian, basically self-taught. Yeah, you know, after a couple of years, <laughs> you got to get it. I ended up having an Italian girlfriend. Um, I lived with her mom and dad. It was it was wild moving over there and, um, you know, just trying to get used to the culture. And um, you probably can, can relate to that because uh, going over there, it's almost like in the beginning it's better, but then after a while it starts to really settle in and you got to get used to how it is. It is, which is just completely different. But I did, um, and, and some of the things you, you think that are are, are, are bad or detrimental at that time turns around to be in your favor. Yeah, and uh, some of your yeah. best lessons in life. Yeah, it's, it's crazy. So, you know, learning to speak Italian and, and racing the world championships, it, it's all gave me the value that I've had for the company and put me in the position. And, and you know, now, now, now it's a great thing. I love being where I'm at. Um, I still use my competitive nature because business is like that. And it gives me the opportunity to, you know, it's still almost like race, but it's in business. I can appreciate self-taught uh, second language because I'm currently taking some German lessons with a tutor uh, online, like Skype uh, sessions. Right. And it's really hard even with that. But yeah. also, I remember being in Italy and and speaking, ti- you know, tiny bits enough to get myself around town or whatever. Yep. But the best way to learn is to embed yourself, I feel like. I almost think you have to. You know, the whole... I can't remember what they are. Those gimmicks, oh, you get the tapes or you get the videos. Man. Rosetta everybody, Stone. Yeah, Rosetta Stone, you know, everybody, is, everybody does it. All these intentions, but nobody learns like that. You just got to go there and get into it. <laughs> For sure. So I guess let's bounce back a little bit. How did you end up there to start with? Did you have a ride here first or no? Yeah, um, let's just, I'll just brief it pretty fast. Um, I, went, I went pro in 89. 
And um, I did. Um, I actually did a Supercross season that year. I believe it was the West Coast. Yes, it was West Coast, 1989, and I ended up getting fourth that year, which there was a lot of guys. Mike Craig, Mike LaRocco, Kudrowski, uh, Jeff Matasevich. I think Dang. Jeff may have won. That's pretty so good. It, it was pretty gnarly. You know, n- nowadays I would have had a full, a full factory ride my, my rookie year getting fourth, but uh, it was it was very cool, and I'm thinking I would do better the next year, 1990. Um, it was a little more challenging in Supercross, but I had a very successful year in Nationals. I ended up uh, skipping the first round at Gainesville, and then I came here to Hangtown, and I got third. But, I mean, I was I literally passed Mike Kudrowski. I'll never forget it. So he's number one. So passing him down the hill here. Of course, it was my home track and racing with Guy Cooper and John Michelle Bale. Those were the main guys. And then Yuzi Matasevich was in there in some rounds. But I got second at Hangtown. I got fifth at Axton, the next one. Okay. And then I got second. Uh, Lake Sugar Tree. Yeah. yeah. That's, so, I'm originally from Virginia, so that's oh, a legendary nice. track in my, my yeah. land. Cool. Actually, in 89, um, that year, I went and trained a little bit with Gary there as oh, well. Okay. Yeah, so that was cool. fun. Um, but uh, I ended up getting second the next week at, at Mount Morris, and that was like a huge, huge deal. I mean, you know, nowadays I would have had a million-dollar contract yeah. because um, I was actually third in the nation for most of the year. And I don't know if I'm going too fast, but um, by being in that position, I actually was a pretty wanted rider. Yeah. And uh, it wasn't all the way to the end. It was about four rounds left to go. I had... Um, factory Suzuki reaching out to me. I had uh, this new. I had a Honda factory Honda sitting with their their bosses, but they had this new team Peak Honda. Okay, you know. So and this was through Mitch, but it was kind of like it was, you know, it hadn't never been done before. So you're going down, you're sitting down, you're reading the contract. Well, I think it was like fifteen thousand salary, and so it was sorry, take that back, thirty thousand salary, but you have to pay fifteen to your mechanic and fifteen for you. Oh, and so it was just kind of a weird deal. It was going to be two guys on one box fan on the East Coast, two guys on the one box fan on the West Coast. The Suzuki deal was like a full factory ride, some salary. I think my salary the first year was twenty grand. But for me, I had never got nothing like that. So I'm like, oh my god, so much money! Yeah. I got per diem every race. Had my own mechanic, own box van, and then I had another offer from Yamaha, but it was still kind of some weird deal. So it was a no brainer. I went Suzuki, not knowing obviously that <laughs> when the peak guys came out, yeah, they were you know, on fire. Yeah, I mean uh, McGrath and Swink and Buell, those guys that could jump the triple in second gear without shifting and. You know, the Suzuki and all the other bikes, we'd all have to click halfway up the triples. And the it, was, it, was cha- it was a little more challenging. If our bike was just, just right, we were competitive. But if it was a little bit off that night or the weather changed, it was just it was way more difficult. Yeah, that's crazy. So you took the Suzuki ride for 91, right? I did. I and did. And then... Yep. So what happened is basically <clears throat> 91... You know, I always, I, you know, in these podcasts, one thing about the history, you can always highlight the good points. So, <laughs> of course, um, I, I did the East Coast Supercross that year. I don't remember exactly why, but um, I remember doing Orlando, and I think it was a, a, a pretty big race between Hughes and Swink, and I, I got third. So that was that was decent. Um, and the next race was the East-West Shootout. It was probably the highlight of not only my career, but just for my family, because I was in second. Tyson had hole-shotted. Oh, wow. And um, I passed him with about two laps to go. And so we were first and second. This was an east-west shootout. So you had McGrath, Swing, all the Pugel, boys were there. everybody. And then uh, McGrath passed Tyson on the last lap. So we still got first and third. But considering, you know, when you look back, like I, we still got that picture. It's like, hey, McGrath is up there with us. That's pretty cool. Super that, that's highlight. got to be yeah. like, uh, yeah, like you said, the highlight of your career. That's yeah, that's definitely, awesome. Definitely. And um, with that said, then the next the next week, I think I got second, and I was leading a championship. But I went to New York, and I was leading a qualifier, and I. People don't really know this, but I, I got hurt rollerblading. I dislocated my shoulder before the season. No way. That was such a scary moment. But um, you know, got back in. I thought I had it tightened up. But what you'll find out is most of the time when your shoulder pops out, 
that gets to be a hole there. And if you hit that just wrong at the right angle, the yeah. thing will just pop out again. Right. And so I'm literally leading this race, and just a little bump going down the start straight, just just the wrong angle on my shoulder came out. Hmm. Couldn't get it back in. And um, so I had to go to the hospital. Long story short, it was right before the outdoor started. I had to miss outdoors because they decided to get surgery. And at that time, that's when the decisions are, and even now, a lot of decisions are made for the next year. Right. So Lampson, I think, was winning, and some of the other guys were winning. You're not in the, you're not in their head. You're not in front of them. I was losing my ride. You know, I got informed that they're going to go with Lampson in that case, and uh, you know, I, I wasn't going to have the factory ride the next year. And it's it's crazy to think at 19 years old you have a factory ride. You lost your factory ride, and at that time there wasn't satellite teams or anything. You're pretty much done. Yeah, it's either factory ride or a, a van. Yeah, on your own. that was it. So that was very difficult. So that's when you made the change to go to Europe. Yeah. So Tyson had been racing the World Championships that same year in 1990. He was um, with one of the teams, and I, I went over and did this great race. It's called the Saparita Fast Cross. A lot of your fans may. I've have heard of I've it. I've heard of it, but I obviously didn't So it, did it would it. be probably the next step below the D-Nation. D-Nation is always this huge event because it's world. But this one, they would bring all the best riders. They'd put us up in the nicest hotels, best food. Um, it was just an amazing race, 30,000 spectators. And um, that year, Alex Puzar was the world champion and Rick Johnson. And I started first, and I battled with those guys for about four or five laps in the race. And I faded back, but I still got third behind those two guys. And so the Italians are very passionate. So I had a couple offers from Italy, and one of them was the team my brother had been with. And at that time, I think it was like, I think 40000 So I'm like, oh, that's double my offer. <laughs> this is how young and dumb I was, though, thinking that, God, those European guys only wear black helmets. They don't have visors. They, they look terrible. I'll kill those guys. Yeah. So I thought, I'll just go there and win the world championship. won't be a big deal. And you come back as the world champion, you'll go to factory ride. So this is my way. Uh, oh boy, I went over there and it was like eight years later. <laughs> yeah, I come back. Still, <laughs> still looking for it. That's the kind of the situation I got in. But at at the end of my e- European tenure, I felt like I was finally comfortable in my surroundings. I was finally in a place where I was enjoying it and and right. it was fun. Did you find that at all? Or? Totally. So what I what I mentioned earlier a little bit is that when I first went over there, the first three weeks it was great because I had no distractions, no friends. I mean, I'd like set my alarm, get up, train, to go do my motos, eat properly. Everything was perfect, and I, I went to the first few pre-season pre-season races. I'd be Donnie Schmidt, I'd be Alex Puzar, I'd be everybody, and they're like, "Oh my God, this is the next guy." But what you find is you can only have yourself at that level, the super high level training, without starting mentally breaking down because you don't have nobody you're talking to. Right. I didn't go with a girlfriend or nothing. It was just me. I mean, by myself in my apartment doing my thing. You can only be at that level for so long. So there were so many things that I learned over the years. And like you said, it took me basically two years because after those three weeks, I started going down. And it was just tough. It was just right. really tough because it wasn't tough because I was a slower rider. It was a tough because I was mentally struggling with just being in a different country and realizing that you're probably not going to win a world championship and all these scenarios that are coming in your head. So I had to kind of accept it, embrace it, and start to grow. And that's exactly what I did. And after about two years starting to speak Italian, had an Italian girlfriend, I started to come back to the writer that I was. Right. Because you found your happiness, you feel? Yeah, or? I found, found happiness. I felt more at home because this is now becoming my home. Right. It changed everything for me. And um, the next big change for me was 1994. My brother came over. And uh, it's very strange when, you, when you're when you young and you don't know the way. It's so difficult when you're trying to find the way. Oh, but 100%. when you find the way, you you feel it. You know you have it. And it, then it seems so easy. But it was so hard to find the way. Yeah, I understand. So your brother and you 
uh, he wasn't racing then, right? He just came he, to help he you? He wasn't. So that's that's another bit of a story. But my, my grandfather was a big part of my brother's career, and he passed away, and it really, um, it really hurt my brother mentally. And, yeah. he, and he couldn't race anymore. So at 23, he had to retire. And um, he was kind of struggling at home and just didn't know what he was going to do. And um, that year, I, I was riding with Pepsi Honda. Uh, it was actually Roger DeCosta was our team manager. And um, Eves DiMaria was on my team. Okay. So I don't know if you remember that. Was, yeah, a I was trying to think. Pretty young then. Was it a British team? Or no, no. Um, no, it was an Italian team. Italian so team? All, all Italian teams were super passionate. Okay. But they were funded by France. But it was really cool having Roger come to some of the events and, and being involved with him. So I, I learned a lot, you know, a lot from him. Um, but at the end of that year, I started doing pretty well. And my brother came over that year and helped me the last few GPs. And I'm like, oh, this feels, this is right. This feels right. Yeah. And I, I, I kind of found myself in a good situation where Albertine had just won the title in 93 with um, Jan DeGru. It was okay. JHK Honda. Okay. And um, he, Alec Wright out of England, had just Cowie had just taken it from him and they moved it over to Jan DeGru, who just won on the Honda. So now... Basically, he's got a long-term deal with Kawasaki. Stefan Everett's the number one rider. They needed a second rider. I was one of the last guys. I was number eight, so I got eighth in the world that year. But I was one of the less, the guys still needed a ride, and he needed a good rider. I was a single digit. He decided to take me. The amazing thing was it was the best money that I ever got offered, best bonuses. And then when I went training, it was like the best bikes. It was amazing when you get on the right team, you I started. I won. I led eight rounds of the world championship that year. Wow. Uh, as was, a points leader. Yeah. Dang. With Everett. That's unreal. So it was. It really changed my career. It put me in a good position. I had my brother. Um, just all the things came together right at the right time, and it's like, then you're really enjoying yourself, and that's what I mean by that feeling of like. I was so stressed out about. I mean, a twink, uh, not a twinkie, like a Snickers or whatever, and I had trainers and did all this stuff. But then my brother would be like, no, you can do this, you can do this, as long as we, you know, we're ready. And, and, oh, man, it was amazing. So much of it's balance. Yeah. It's just, it's unreal. I, I found that as well, like, in in my European career and even now, like, so much of it is my home life is a, a huge part of what I have going on. My wife and two kids and, you know, they, they are my balance. They are my kind of uh, compass, if you will. And, right. And when you find that, it's, it's crazy how much confidence it will give you in other situations like riding and racing and yep for me it was my brother that's the that same it's like it was just having a family member that had your best interest in heart you could do things you could enjoy each other and then as the results are getting better the money's better everything was better we go buy pit bikes it was just it suddenly became fun yeah so it wasn't like you're doing your job we were having fun and yeah it really changed my career and from that point on um you know it kind of i had a few good really good years after that yeah i never had the chance to meet yonder group but i've never heard anyone with a crossword about the guy and like also what what a genius he was and when it came to like building bikes and parts and just the, the stuff that he did as a manager yeah i believe his philosophy was if you didn't win or he wasn't happy he would never say anything mean to you or bad to you but his idea was i gotta make the bike faster if i make this bike fast enough my rider's gonna win and if we had a bad race he would be on the dyno the next three days every time and uh you know i really i really appreciate him taking the chance with me and it gave me um you know the next few years of good contracts because once you can show yourself not only is he interested but other teams became interested yeah i had a manager much like that steve dixon i don't know he was probably doing gps yeah yeah uh and and like I always tell people if if I needed pink plastic for Saturday and it was it was Thursday, yeah. he was going to do everything he could do to get me some pink plastic. Yeah. If if he felt like I truly it was truly going to make a difference, it was just whatever it took, you know. And yeah. and that's one thing about those like 
factory, quote unquote factory slash private teams in Europe is those guys are so passionate. They're not always not so much on a shoestring, but the budget's very down to the to the penny. Right. And, but they're going to do whatever it takes to to make that bike as good as they can possibly make it and make you as comfortably as you can poss- possibly be. Yep. Yep. No, that's just no doubt. I, I even mentioned that to one of the team managers that I was talking to that I, I felt like in Europe they're just so passionate and I felt like the rider could get more what he wanted. Yeah. It's know? a different type of passion. Like here, it's, I don't know, it's still passion, I guess you would say, but it's like they... It's more like racing in its purest form, I would say. There's not so much. It's like racing first, business second. And here yeah, it's more you know business. And, Absolutely, and it was amazing. You know, it was amazing being over there. And then I, I would come back and we did the USGP. <laughs> and you know, in Europe, all the riders they travel together around the world. So yeah. we go to Brazil, we go to Japan, and everybody's pretty friendly. Hey, what's up? We play soccer together. We play volleyball together and stuff during the, during the week because you're trying to kill some time. And then you come to America, and you're like, you know, there's like McGrath or, or Stanton or whatever, and you're like, hey, what's up? And like, they just glare at you, and you're like, whoa, yeah. <laughs> these guys are gnarly. Why, why so friendly? <laughs> yeah. yeah, I mean, we, we used to stay same campsites during the week and, you know, camp, hangout, barbecue, whatever, and, yeah. and it's just, it's a different vibe and feel. I always tell people that it's more like um, GNCC racing here, you know? It's just like a bunch of friends riding dirt bikes in a field, and, yeah. you know, the more money and the rest will sort itself out later at yeah. another time. Yeah, at the professional in America, it's pretty not. It's pretty just, yeah, just tough and brutal. It is. Yeah. Fly Racing USA. Dudes, I love a BOA system, okay? If it were up to me, everything would be BOA. No more shoelaces, no more snaps, just BOA. BOA everything. So when Fly told me they were putting the BOA system on some of their pants, totally stoked. Um, I love everything I have from Fly. And one thing that people probably don't know is they make some pretty sick mountain bike stuff. So when I'm out on my Levo crushing it, I love to wear Fly. Check them out, flyracing.com. So how many GPs did you end up winning? Uh, I ended up winning four GPs. Four so GPs. very competitive, lots of seconds. You know, it's always challenging to win. And I did get four of them, though, so I'm really proud of that. And That's awesome. Yeah, and it was it was, it was was good. Um, it was a great, great opportunity. Had a great career over there. Um, I, I did ride for Yonder Group, so just to cover a little bit more as we're coming up to it, um, I went to Michele Rinaldi, which okay. is the Yamaha Chesterfield team. Yep. So that was... When I talk about teams, that was probably the most professional team I ever had. They had a practice bike mechanic. You had a race bike mechanic. Basically, you know, you just come down out of your apartment. You know, you do your training, get on your bike, go do your training, drop it off. The next day you had wheels, tires, and all the things you needed to do to go, you know, do your job at the highest level. And you just, you know, try to make sure you're ready on the weekend. Yeah, I, I know McKaylee and the team. And um, even the first year or two that I was on Dixon's team, we were Rinaldi supplied yep. uh, of the motor stuff and stuff. Yep. I know the, the situation there. And it's always, like, super tip-top professional. Totally. And uh, it's such a cool little deal that they have there. And it's Longirano, right? That yep, sound? yep. Langriano, yeah. Yeah, but, like, the cycling there is unreal. There's tracks galore, you know, yeah. that they can go to at any any given time. It was always cool to go and uh, and see those guys in Italy. Yeah, it's funny, too. The Italians, they always carry a stopwatch, you know. So, <laughs> like, I hated that because everywhere you go, and then you go, and they're like, you know, McKaylee here in 1985 <laughs> was two seconds faster than you. <laughs> like, what, dude, that was ten years ago. <laughs> the bumps haven't changed. Yeah, the track's still the same, okay. <laughs> So I don't know. It was kind of funny. A lot of that stuff, you know. I would give riding schools over there sometimes, and I would tell every dad's got their kid. They come out there, and they all got their stopwatch. And the first thing I would tell them is, "Hey, 
We want to teach your kid technique. We don't want to worry about their lap times. Oh, that drive them crazy. So it's funny. I, I remember. That's funny that you say that because at a ton of tracks in Italy, they have like a a board at the gate or at the sign up building that says yeah. like lap record. Like there it is. Right, like, right. Just in case you needed to know for the day, here's your lap record. This is what you're looking for. Yeah, that's funny. That's crazy. It is like that. There, they're so used to those. You know, road racing and scooters, everything's about the fraction of a second. Yeah. So you, uh, Chesterfield Yamaha, who were your teammates there? Had to be pretty legendary team. Um, well, actually, Mike Brown was in 1997. Okay. So that was his first year coming over. He, he was a little bit challenged that first year. It was just, you know, it's the same thing. It's always tough when you're first coming over. Yeah. Um, but, yeah, he was. And then the next year was Mikel Machio from France. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. So he was he was pretty good. And um, But, yeah, that was, that was good. I led the world championship. That year for about five rounds, and then uh, ended up getting hurt in '97. '98 was a little more challenging. You start learning on those teams. The budget budget is always a big factor. And right. We had Chesterfield in '97, but it went away for '98. So it was just you know it was just Yamaha, and it was just small things. But we didn't have the factory frame, so and there were a few factory parts we just didn't have. And people don't realize that, but. That testing and those things, they make a difference in the long run. Tweaks make a huge difference. They did. And so, yeah, it was a little more challenging that year. That year was, yeah, 98 and Stefan, and that was a great year for Stefan and Sebastian Tortelli. They had a huge battle that year, right to the last round. Was that the year that Tortelli had the crash in Brazil, uh, in Brazil? Or was that later? No, I think that was that year, yeah. Dude, that was one of the biggest crashes, like ever of all yeah, time yeah, down the hill gets yeah, a head yeah. shake swap tank slapper massive crash gets right back up <laughs> how about Albie hitting the deer <laughs> dude that was that was Roggenberg right yeah I think I, that was Roggenberg I think yeah. I've seen a video of that and that is a big crash because yeah. it's going down that leading the race yeah how are you like that oh, dad you call your dad hey dad uh, I hit a deer and lost the I was going to win this GP but uh, I hit a, hit a deer <laughs> what's the D Nations oh Destinations yeah, yeah sorry yeah holy crap <laughs> I was going to win the D Nations I hit a country. deer that's crazy it's unreal I, I wish that um, I would have gotten to race some more of those like legendary tracks Roggenberg I raced Fox Hill which is you know that's a good one in, yeah. in Britain it's a legend yeah, uh, yeah, Hawkstone's totally. a legend too but I hate yep. that place yeah, it was that, always one of my least favorite tracks I've only Earth. ridden there one time at the, I think every year they have that Hawkstone race for international like race yeah. yeah I did that one time it's, it's always crappy weather there though and the track's just sandy and yeah it's, it's an old school track though the older I get the like, cooler it was to ride it but when I was riding it it was like yeah what the hell is this old track yeah I actually <laughs> uh, one of the coolest tracks I've ridden was uh, I rode um, Carlsbad but I was on a 60. It was when I was like eight years old for a, oh, wow. for a KTM dealer show back in the day. That was pretty cool. Uh, what, was, what was your favorite GP track? Oh, God. Um, I really like Switzerland. I can't remember what. Uh, I think it's called Pierre, Pierre, Pierre. Okay. I, yeah. I know of it, but I've yeah, never. Yeah, I think that was it. more in the beginning of the 90s. And okay. then it went away like after 95 or 96. But that was a really nice track because it was, it was very similar to Unidale up in the hills. It was always green grass because they had the cows out there before. So <laughs> it was a beautiful track. That's so awesome. Like that one. And then, of course, Majora was always cool, too. I've never ridden Majora. Yeah, so I got to ride there a few times and racer. I actually got to throw this in there on the podcast, but I took over the Lead the World Championship, the second mode there in 1995. Oh, okay. So that was like a super memorable a Special moment. deal. For yeah, it was actually my first Jeep. P Moto One in the two fifty class and I ended up t- it's just so weird how things work out. That that the beginning of that day was terrible. We were struggling. I crashed. I thought this I remember thinking in my mind, this is why I don't I'm not gonna win the world championship or in that moto. God I kept plugging away. I think I got fourth or fifth. Next moto I win. Dean Maria breaks his leg, who was the points leader. Stefan 
did some broke the bike and I was leaning by like 10 points when I left it. I could not believe That's it. That's unreal. So. <laughs> Turning a bad day into, into a good one, the yeah, best day. You know about that. Yeah, for sure. For sure. <laughs> it takes those to win a championship though. Like that, it you does. know, it's super cliche, but championships are one on your bad day. It's like totally, one of the, the totally. oldest sayings in the sport. Yep. So you, st- you, were there through 97 or through 98? Um, so, uh, 98. 98 was my last year. And, um, you know, in 97, Bobby Moore was my teammate. And he'd been over to Europe for a lot of years, and he was riding for Rinaldi. I believe he was on the one... He went back to 125s. So I was on the 250. He was on the 125s. But we lived in the same building. It's just... He was just right next door to me. Yeah. So I got to know him pretty well. And he came back to Europe, I believe, in 98 to be a team manager. So he retired at the end of 97. And he was working for the FMF... Honda team, which I think was Sheik and uh, there were maybe Sellers. I'm not sure who was on there, but anyways, he calls me up and he's like, "Talon, you would not believe how much money they're paying these guys over here." And I'm like, "Okay, so what?" And he's like, "Well, I can get you not a ton of money, but the bonuses are crazy. They're like twenty five thousand or thirty thousand to win, and ten thousand. Just I'm like, dude." He's like, I can give you that, I swear. And I'm like, send me the contract. So he sends it, and it's real. I could not believe it. Because, you know, in Europe, if you want to GP both motors, you might get three grand. Yeah. So that's like, this is like literally 20, 25 grand for the overall. Right. And then in the outdoors, they broke that up so it would be per moto. So you could have a bad moto and still make 10. Yeah. I could not believe it. So he sent me that over, and I said, you know what? If I'm going back to America, this is the chance. And so I had learned a few things. So I negotiated him with Honda that... I wanted to at least have full factory suspension. And so they they, get, they said, okay, we can give you lamps and suspension from last year. So I had full factory suspension for the outdoors. And then, um, yeah, then I just had their program for the indoors. And that, that was kind of, that was 99 when a lot of people remember me racing Ricky that year. Right. So that was... A, that was the epic Glen Helen yeah, battle. Totally. Like, so that, that, that's got to be something still that's pretty special for yeah, you. Yeah, I, I live like two years off of that. Yeah. <laughs> like, you know, do, doing that well. And then I actually, a lot of people don't know, but the next week I actually beat him the first one straight up at Hangtown, and he beat me the second. But So we tied on points. But that was an incredible, incredible year. And if, if you got a second, like, I could give you some details on that year. Yeah, you got for sure. Oh, yeah. So start, starting that year, I was doing Supercross, but it was a bit of a struggle coming back from Europe to race Supercross. Right. I really hadn't practiced that much, and um, it just wasn't that good. And I was having some issues with the, the Honda bike popping um, hit the most inopportune times for <laughs> triples and things like this. So I was crashing, and I was just struggling, and um, we... We were we were about ready to like throw in the towel, like just stop stop Supercross and go to the outdoor. I said, well, let's go to Daytona. That's kind of like an outdoor track. So I, I got there. I still I still the bike still did it, and I literally was like crying. And I told my brother, hey, I'm I'm done. Like I'm stopping racing. He's like, well, you know, we've had a good career, and let's go home and we'll just you know we'll just wrap everything up. And I was like, okay. So that's it. Like I literally people don't notice. I literally quit in '99 for like about two weeks, and then I was sitting there at home, and I'm like, you know what? I got those factory suspensions. I know... That's like mid-Supercross, yeah, pre-outdoors. Yeah, totally. So um, I had some time before the outdoors were going to start, and I go, yeah. you know what? I, I think I can still do this thing. And uh, so I, I, I literally called up Jeff DeMint in Italy because I wasn't happy with the bike. So I called Jeff DeMint. I said, could I fly over there? I bought my own ticket, flew over there. I tested the SR... He was riding for a company called SRS, or a little Italian company. Yeah, they actually still had a team when I was racing right. uh, to, for the first two years, yeah. Yeah, good guys, good brothers, you know, super passionate... And I just I wanted a bike that ran really good because for some reason at that time the bikes were cutting out and popping and it just wasn't working for me. So I went over there, I rode his bike. It was it was not maybe not faster than mine, but it was super solid, consistent, no popping bogging. I said, could I have this engine 
I'll, I'll buy it from you. And they said, yeah, we'll, we'll give you the, not the full race that we're using in GPs, but our, our engine that we sell. Yeah. Perfect. Came back. Long story short, I, it, it, it kind of went, like the team said, like, hey, if sales, those guys could brought, uh, ride it. As long as you use FMF pipe, we'll get it for you. So they did. So then I just really put my head down, and I trained so hard for like a m- month and a half straight before I went to Glen Helen. And when you train that hard, like, I can't even explain it. Like, you believe beyond belief. So the first moto, I crashed and came back to six, and nobody really recognized me. But I'm like, I know I can win this thing. I know I can win it. And that's where Ricky started first. I started, I think, about seventh or eighth. I got to second pretty fast, and then I just... You know, I went after him, and that's when that, that great moment came where I caught him and yeah. I battled with him a little bit. You guys went back like and forth. On the map. Yeah. And that whole year, actually, till the eighth round, I was only four points behind him going into Unadilla. Dang. And then I ended up crashing, and, and, and somebody landed on me, and it, I had to spend that day in the hospital. So, so you missed <laughs> a round. 50 points right there. Yeah. yeah. Man, that's so that gnarly. It's crazy that you were at that point, though, like yeah. your lowest, your low, I guess you would say lowest point. To your highest point in a matter of six or eight weeks that's that's unreal yeah it's yeah. quite the turnaround hey, but it's 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 nothing like being at the low nothing like having your back up the wall that makes you perform the best exactly i'll say that and, and and i tell people that like like i really believe that and even now um it's i never get more focused than when my back's up against the wall it's yeah. weird but that's just the way it is that's the way people are i agree i can totally attest to that i, I am 100 percent the same in the fact that i I operate best when I when it's crunch time and I have to go for it. Right, right. So, the ninety eight year uh, or ninety nine year, sorry, um, the rest of the outdoors obviously was really good. And then I still ended up third. You know, after that injury, it was I cracked some ribs and a shoulder. Came back. Oh, I can't remember what I got. What shoot goal, but I was still in the top three or four. So I ended up third overall that year. It was good. Then I signed it. Uh, a two-year deal with Mitch. Apparently, Mitch was with. Uh, this is what I heard the story with Ricky. And Ricky's like, or Mitch is like, who the who should we hire next year? And he's like, dude, I hired talent. That dude's super fast. Yeah. And so that was kind of cool because he got me the ride. But um, I signed a two-year deal there. Uh, and then in two two thousand, I was leading the. That's kind of like my story. Leading, always leading. <laughs> so after around three rounds, uh, I'd won Anaheim two. I'd got second at Phoenix. I was leading, and you know, crash broke my shoulder. So that was another another story. Um, you know, and then uh, and then on the nationals, I won Glen Helen, um, and uh, yeah, I had some good results. But those Yamahas were fast. Roncado was fast. This is when another story. Quick one about Travis Pastrana. So in '99, I mean, I remember being at Chaparral, and, and everything's about Pastrana. I'm like sick of this guy. Like, I didn't even rate. He's coming out of amateurs. Well, he does this backflip into the bay, and he's on every press, and I'm like. Me and some of the riders were talking. I'm like, screw that guy. When he races next year, let's kill him. I'm going to kill him. <laughs> <laughs> and so then I never forget we're at Southwick. And this dude's at the second moto. I'm like, I'm winning this moto. I don't know if you ever got like that. Like you get a certain thing. You're like, oh, yeah. I got to win it's this happening. moto. Yeah. Like I'm, there's no way I'm losing this moto. And that's the way I was. Well, he's coming up on me. He's battling. And people might, if they go to YouTube, they'll see it where me and him are hitting each other. And he passes me with like a half a lap to go. Goes across the line and he's typical Travis screaming, yelling, laughing. He's like hugging me, and I'm looking at this guy. I'm like, God damn, he's got no goggles on. <laughs> and right there, I was like, you know what, this guy's for real. So he's pretty legit. It got real humble real fast. That's, that's pretty funny. That's that's an awesome story. That's I mean, he's one of the greatest talents that the sport's ever known, in my opinion. But I had no idea though. I, you know, when he's coming up doing all this stupid stuff, I'm like, this is bullshit. I'll probably start running abs with him, and I just won the national. I'm battling Ricky or whatever, and. Yeah, okay. They're it's, worried it's, about this. Not like racing to humble you, though, if somebody kicks your butt. So that's what happened. <laughs> that's awesome. So you raced the two years with Mitch. Mm. Yeah, so the first year was pretty good, but not what he wanted. You know, obviously yeah. he hired me to win. That's what 
um, to I was replace supposed Ricky to do. Right, else, yeah. exactly. So I got third again. Um, made some mistakes, you know, for reasons. And I kind of, you know, when you start looking back, oh, okay, I was kind of getting on the backside of my career, and I didn't even realize it. Right. Because I was doing all this, you know, looking back, I was doing all this stuff with like getting my scooter to look at the track and all these things that, that weren't important. Yeah. In '99, I was just living living at my house by myself, doing my thing. But it's so easy, and you don't realize it till later to get sidetracked. So these are these are some things I hope that I can share with my son, Max, to try to like. You know, hey, like you need to when you're doing this, you need to be like this. Yeah. So, but anyways, um, then 2001, I had some pretty tough concussions, um, and that that was just uh, me. Also, Rhino, I can't remember. Um, it was somebody. Oh, and Travis Pastrana. Yeah. So we, I don't want to say what helmets we were wearing, but I think it was a part of that. And um, you know, so that was kind of like, I mean, it was a concussion where I couldn't recover. Like I was dizzy for like a month. I never had that before. Yeah. So you know, it was just getting. It was getting to the point to the end. Um, I did find a new contract going to Europe. It was um, MJ's Church at Kawasaki in okay. England. Yeah, I know. Good, good people. Well, like... But you know, as a writer, you get used to make a certain amount of money. It seems like teams that are just coming up, if they have money, they're willing to pay that because they're hoping you can bring their team to the next level. Right. But as a writer, and once you've had those top teams, and you're kind of getting on the backside, you think. That you can still get those results, but what you find out is, no, no matter how hard you're training, when you're on those teams, you just—it's twice as hard as it used to be. And when you're young and dumb, you give it everything you got. When you get older, you're like, man, you know what the other guys got. Yeah. So it's just those are all the things that you start to recognize when you're coming to end of your career. And then there was the final moment was um, the young kid Ben Townley was coming up, Tyler Rattray. So I remember seeing Ben with the sunglasses on, and he had to get like first pick. I had like 13th or 14th pick, so I'm seeing him walking in front of me. And in 95, 96, I remember being like that with me and Stefan. We'd always have our glasses on. Yeah, it's different. I don't even know how to explain it. But when you're the champion, you feel different. You are different. It's just a different deal. When you start getting crappy results, you you feel totally a different way. Right. And when I was sitting there in that moment thinking about how he's feeling and how I used to feel, that was the moment I said, you know, I need to to retire because I'm not going to feel that way anymore. And so it wasn't long after that I decided to, you know, go down to Italy and start putting a deal together for my job. That's pretty pretty cool though that you were you know mature enough I guess you would say to just realize that that was that was it. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I think everybody gets that. You know, it's just it's so easy to recognize now, but when you're in it, sometimes it's hard to recognize. Yeah, but um, that's the that's one of the crazy one of the harder things from my career is, or or one of the things I've learned the most over my career is it's so it all seems so daunting and so uh, important and and so on when you're in it, but then once you're either slightly removed from it or even a couple years down the road. You're like, man, what you know? What was that? Why was I? What was I doing? I totally agree, 100. <laughs> percent I've looked back at a few situations, and one is what I was talking about. I'm doing the scooter, and I'm making the graphics look all cool, like my bike. What the hell is was I doing? <laughs> so I have no idea, but I can really see that I was unfocused. You yeah, know? and it's it's amazing. So again, I, I hope that in the future, because you know, having my son come up, I, I mean, the one thing I can give him is all the mistakes that I made, and and share with him the experiences that, that I had that could benefit him. And so those are the kind of things I hope because there are going to be those moments when you get off the wrong track or something comes along and gets you off the wrong track that I can hopefully he'll listen to me and I can point him out and say, look, this is what I think. If I if he doesn't, at least usually what I've seen back with Everett's, his dad and that, they'll they'll come back to you eventually and you get them on the right track. Right, so. yeah. I mean, you know, moving on a little bit to Max, he's uh, pretty much a phenom at this point, an amateur phenom. And like you right. said, you know, you want to pass down all, all the – or, or try to help him pass all the pitfalls and pass down some some knowledge to him. I think it's uh, pretty incredible that the teacher that he has. You know, you've you've been around a lot, and he's uh, 
to this point, probably one of the better kids that's second generation um, in a long time, I would say. Right, yeah. Well, I've been, you know, I, I didn't go crazy in the beginning. At first, I didn't even think my kid would ride. But it's so funny how life is, and it comes back around to you always getting back to what you know, you know, what you know best. And, I mean, I always thought, I'll go, my kid's going to play golf or do this. But you might lose a whole generation and go through all the things that I went through. And you didn't quite get there, and now you got to maybe do it again with his kid, you know. Yeah. So we we um, we started doing BMX. I think that was a huge contribution to the style and technique that he has and then we built off that once we moved over to motorcycles and uh, i don't go i don't go crazy with him i let him kind of pick and choose what he wanted to do and i'm just trying to it's hard to explain but just trying to be smart with him and i would say the first thing i've started with him till now always is just managing risk as a professional you always want to manage risk in our sport because that's the biggest challenge right you know injuries and risk so when i say that meaning sometimes you go practice and you know, fortunately, as a father, I have a pretty good idea. Watch him like he's at where he needs to be. We just let him get out of there, even if it's one moto, or depending on how he feels for the day. But there's no. It sounds weird, but sometimes riding more is. My dad was always the opposite of the way that I'm training, which sounds crazy, but he was always hardcore boxer type style. You got to kill yourself to the end. It's not. It's more complicated like it like that in our sport because you're not trying to get ready for runways. You have a whole series of races all year long. You got to race. Yeah, and especially at. now. I think there's so many people on a, a much. Not that people in in your era weren't fit. Obviously, they were super fit. But um, I think that the the level of continuity during you know 30 weeks of the year now is a little bit higher than than then just because of what you said like there are so many people on that you got to just go and hammer total level but the other thing is you want to try to avoid injury and sometimes riding more is more risk for injury than not i'd rather be healthy and be 10 percent off on my training than to not be healthy and be 100 percent fit you know what i mean so yeah, those are the kind of things i, I try to really watch out for him and just try to try to manage that i want to be able to hand them off to the managers and the right people in the pro ranks no knee injuries, no concussions. I mean, that's my goal. I mean, it might happen. You don't never know when you're racing, but yeah. so far, that's what I'm working toward to be able to hand them off to the right people with us, you know, pretty much healthy and ready to go. Then that's, they can build from there. I think that's a, a great approach to it. And, and um, like we were discussing a little bit before, you know, he races a lot. He has good craft. He has all the skills that it takes to to be a champion. And and um, I like the way that you're you're approaching the whole deal i think it's um pretty refreshing actually right no cool i appreciate that yeah just you know it 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 bums me out i I follow passion this is my passion motocross i follow it i watch everything in europe being there and you just see so many um because there's a lot of talented kids i don't say every kid but when we got these top amateurs they're all talented a lot of them's just bad decisions and mistakes ends up you know kind of could be screwing up their career and makes it a lot more difficult so, you know, I'm just trying to use my knowledge and my experience to to try to eliminate those and put them in the right position. Yeah, I understand. I totally agree with you. Um, hey, quickly, though. One, yeah. one good thing is, uh, out of all the crap that I've been through, no matter how bad of a situation gets in, I always got a worse story to share with them. I like that. And then the other <laughs> day when we were at the at the test track, he was we were talking about you uh, seeing on Instagram that I think it was 2000s motocross or 90s motocross and yeah. posted the video of, of Ricky because I was asking him if you ever like, hey, you know, I you know I raced Ricky, I beat Ricky, you yeah. know, and he was like, oh yeah, we that's all we hear about. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, he has to watch that, and you know, I keep telling him even up till now, I'll, I'll kick his butt, but. Uh, He's at the point now. He's getting 16. He said he wants to, to take me on. So um, as soon as he gets to 125, I'm going to have to brush off a little bit of the weight 
get some training and, and teach them, you know, what, what it was like Give in the 90s business. back in the day. Yeah, yeah, I like I like the sound <laughs> of that. I'll be there if you guys are selling tickets to that. Yeah, I think I think we're going to do like a full-on showdown. That'd be really cool. Um, I'm trying to keep his confidence up, you know, yeah. so that's the thing. It's a tough situation. Well, the, the, the advantage of that is no matter what happens, you know, you have that in your back pocket if he truly beats you or right. if, he, if he doesn't, you know, it's yeah. like, hey, you know. Exactly. To, you know, I don't want to tear you down. I might have to let him pass me in the last corner. Let's yeah. just say that. Oh, like, oh, I made yeah. a mistake. Right. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's that's awesome. Skosh, accessories for life. Listen, guys, their slogan sums it up. They are accessories for your life. I use the Magic Mount vent clip every day, boom bottle all the time, go bat when we're traveling. Whatever it may be, the functionality and durability of these products is second to none. That's why myself and Rockstar and J Husqvarna Factory Racing choose Skosh. Accessories for life. Check them out at Skosh, S-C-O-S-C-H-E dot com. As a father, like, you said something about golf a minute ago, but, like, with my little boy now, even my little girl, she had her first big yard sale on the bicycle the other day, and... I was I was like, dang it, like that sucked really bad. Like I was bummed. She she came around this little corner and there was a like a dip in the in the sidewalk and the curb stayed high. So she went she got between the grass and the curb and then fell off the curb onto the sidewalk and it was a pretty good little digger. She got up like a champ and and she was probably less upset than I was. Like, does that happen for you at all? I mean, this is a different level. Like we're talking about five year old on a bicycle. We're ta- compared to your kid riding a super mini at the, right. the tip top level of super mini riding well but first when you tell me that and i know he's thinking the same story so we have i have a daughter too and she was probably about he was probably about five or four and she was probably about six and so we're doing bmx together because she wants to be involved she loves it so she and so she's done these whoops a couple of times like um manual and i'm through or whatever just giving her daddy daddy watch me and same thing she went flying through the first time i go to watch her Way too fast, over the bars, air, you know, she knocked the air out of herself and she was crying. And that was the last time she rode that. But when you told me that story, it made me think about that exact moment. So, but, um, you know, you know re- regarding him and just being a dad, it's, it is, it is, it's actually tougher being a dad watching your kid race than, than me, than my, myself racing. Oh, uh, I can, I mean, for me, even just with my little girl riding her bike, I definitely yeah. can attest to that. Like, it's very, very difficult. The only thing that I, I would say find com- I'm not sure the word find confidence in is that I always believe when I race if you're because this is a high risk sport okay but if you're prepared properly you're really going to minimize I don't say minimize the risk but the opportunity for risk it's always there but um, and so I try to go with that to really just make sure that he's always prepared in the right way and then okay if something happens something happens but anything can happen even in walking around on the street or riding your bicycle or anything so I try to rollerblading rollerblading there you go yeah so this yeah so that's it is um that's what kind of gives me a you know a better feeling about it is that okay as long as he's prepared right then i'm okay with it. it's like okay we did everything that we makes could do. you feel better about this that's kind of why when i stopped racing i, I really didn't ride anymore because it, it, it it's 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 fun but it, it's also high risk and um i just i just feel like like all the years that I raced and everything, I took the maximum amount of risk. It'd be dumb for me to go out there now because that's when you do get hurt. It's when you're not in shape, you're not prepared. And so that's, that's... I love to ride, but I often wonder the same thing. Like if, you know, when I'm 40 or 35 even, right. if I'll still be like really willing to take the risk. I, I really want to go back to Loretta someday at some point. But right. will it be, you know, will it be like, 
uh, you know what? I'm not really that interested when I'm not in shape and 100 percent, and I'm not on a yeah. bike that's really, really good, and and all those things. Yeah. That's the thing is when you have a good bike. So then nobody gives you any help after <laughs> you're done. Yeah, you're riding a stock bike. Right, you're riding a stock bike. You're kind of chubby. You're t- in your mind, like in my mind, if I ride the track, I can. I'm like, oh, I'm gonna do this. It's gonna be so good. The next up, I start to even try to do it. My arms are pumped. <laughs> I can't even breathe a lap after that. And it's like, oh, this sucks. And then some little six year old kids, like his dad's been telling him about volan his whole career, and he just wants to smoke you, and he is smoking you. And it's like, <laughs> I'm done. So that's kind of how that all goes. Yeah, <laughs> I understand. So, um, moving on a little bit to your deal now with the Cherbies, you've been there for 16 years, 17 years. Yeah. So, um, yeah, it, it, it was kind of tough when I first started because, um, you know, when you come from being a professional athlete into a job. Um, it's just it's a big change you know it's not uh, it's, it's just totally different and that was a struggle the first year but i'm glad that i stuck with it and uh, as i as i grew with the company i became in a better and better position and now um in 2010 when the recession hit they really needed help in sales i moved over and um one thing I'll, one thing i'll say that i learned about motocross you know i think most motocro- motocrossers that are good are, are probably not the highest education because you just you get so focused as a kid riding and stuff you got to spend a lot of hours you don't really focus on education but the work ethic and discipline that you have to be an elite athlete if you carry that over into work and that's what that's what uh what i've done um you can also be very successful and uh and what i mean is like i i'll get up and he knows i get up at four and five every single morning working because i'm probably not as smart or as good as 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 the people that are educated so it takes me longer but that just goes back to to, to work ethic you yeah. know it's like i, I want to make it happen so i don't care if i got to step all night i'm going to make it happen and that's what i've done from day one with the tribbies and it's been it's been pretty successful and we're, we're, we're doing great as a company i'm super excited that um, i'm in the position that i am and i'm really in a position where um, i make a lot of the decisions that that ultimately affect the company good or bad here in the u.s and so it's it's really just like racing because uh, I look as um, our other plastic guys as competitors, and I'm trying to sponsor the best riders, or trying to do this, or trying to do that to, you know, to limit them and to make sure our sales and uh, and our projections are, go the way that we want. Yeah, I, I can I can understand that, and um, it's like anything in life. Once you've had that taste of like the tip top, if you're doing you know whatever selling plastic, for example, you right. want to be the tip top, you know, and totally. I think, you guys are pretty up there, right? Yep, 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 yep. Oh, yeah, we're I, uh, at Chirby's, you know, fortunately for me, when I came in, Mr. Franco Chirby's had built such a, gr- a great brand, the number one brand. So my point was just to keep it number one, um, you know, marketing, promotion, and sales. And that's exactly uh, what I've done and we've done. And uh, I think we're in, a, we're in a great position. We're a sponsor of the MX Nationals. Um, we have a lot of the elite teams from KTM, Kawasaki, and... Um, you know, so it's it's been really successful. It's cool. I think uh, my first ever chest protector was in a Cherby's chest protector. It was like one piece yeah. purple. Yeah, yeah, yeah. We had that thing? <laughs> I don't know if you had the zoom. I think the zoom was a little big for you, Zooms. but we had a couple different ones there. And uh, this in was a, tiny. In I the mean, 90s. like micro. The kids' chest protector. Yeah. Then. yeah. So that's cool. awesome. Well, Talon, thank you so much for your time. Um, I really appreciate it. It's cool to hear your stories. I. Um, I love to just reflect on my time in Europe through other people uh, as well as hear their experiences. I think it's awesome. Um, I think you're doing a great job with your son, Max, and I, I know he's going to be successful someday. Um, and also with, you know, your career, it's it's pretty pretty sick. Yeah, well, Zach, thank you. I, I really appreciate it. And i got to go back to the greatest Supercross I ever saw. <laughs> you know, not only me, Max. I mean, I've been a lot of Supercross. We talked to the 86, but um, that night was... Uh, 
was the greatest supercross that I ever saw. Thank you, man. I, I appreciate that. A lot of people say that, and it's uh, uh, kind of surreal to to be honest. Um, first of all, that I only got seventh. You know, right. it, it, typically gr- the greatest rides you've ever seen aren't for seventh place, but. Right. Um, yeah, it was it was unreal, and I appreciate that observation. Cool. And that moto is it was it was interesting. It, it seemed like when you went down, I guess I'm interviewing you now, but when you went down in first turn, this was me watching from the stadiums, and it seemed like you, you were like, okay, it's over, because it seemed like you got up and you were kind of riding fast, but I didn't feel like you were riding like you did the last three laps. You're kind of like yeah. it looked like you were building it, like like you started to believe, and then you believe more and more and more until the end. You're just going so fast yeah but it was just it was it was like that moment i said where okay it's gone it's done you went from the beginning of the race of thinking it's done to being the the, the supercross champion unbelievable it was unbelievable and and like <laughs> i think part of the the deal in the beginning was like i was so far behind even dead last like it was just like you were whatever, i mean you, know? yeah, you, you crashed in the first corner yeah unbelievable it was crazy so my, anyway. my wife accuses me of being like hyper aware i guess you would say and and uh, that night, my hyper-awareness of, you know, my surroundings and where everyone else was on the track kind of paid off for me, I guess. It sure did. It was a, it was an amazing race. And even the race after that, was it was like you got the two best races there ever was in the history of Supercross in one night. It was amazing. Thank you. Thank you, sir. I appreciate that. <laughs> cool. um, I always end with 10 funny or personality questions, funny questions, whatever you want to sure. say. Sure. Um, most important object you own that you've purchased? Uh, most important object? Well... I think that comes to mind is when I, I don't actually own this anymore, but when I was a kid out running and stuff, I'd always, and it's probably because my dad had a Corvette. He told me about the story, so we would he would share that with me, and I'd I'd go I'd go by and look at this Corvette, and I always wanted one. And when I finally got enough enough money, that was the first stu- stupid buy. You know, <laughs> now I look back, it was dumb, but I bought that Corvette. But in my mind, it was still such a special thing to buy because it's something you always wanted. And what I what I did realize, I don't know if this means anything, but what I realized is when you don't have money and you really want something. When you finally get it, that's when it has its most value. As I become older, when you have money to buy things, they don't have it. You just don't get that feeling right, anymore. So yeah. that was probably one of the most special things that I bought. Like a, a little bit of a carrot. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, guilty pleasure food. Guilty pleasure. Yeah, chocolate. Chocolate. <laughs> yeah. Uh, morning person or night? Morning. Morning. Biggest pet peeve. What, what, what do you mean? Um, like mine's backwards toilet paper. Backwards yeah. toilet paper really oh. ticks me off. Or um, I don't even know one other one right now. Oh, God. Anything yeah, that's, that's just think. like Let's quirky. go back to that. Any other sport that you could do or talent, what would it be? Um, well, uh, I think golf. You know, I always – I love golf. So me and my brother when we were in Europe, we would golf a lot because being in Europe there and stuff. But I just didn't – you know, I don't get as much time to do it now. But when I was racing, I got to do it a lot. I love golf. I, I'm a big golf fan and avid golfer. Um, travel back in time to any event, whether it's your career, what I mean, whatever. I always love MotoGP. I'm just trying to think of the sickest race. Sickest race. So some some race in MotoGP. Racing. Say, yeah. Um, thing you're the worst at. Yeah, thing you're the worst at. Uh, man, <laughs> I don't know. Thing you're the best at, other than riding or training. Uh, well, uh, now 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 it's work. work. So yeah, just discipline for work and work. I love work. All right, and um, a quote to live by. 
and just be all that you can be. Be all that you, you can know? be. Yeah, be all you can be. Awesome. Thank you so much, Talon. Thank you for your time. Um, you'll get to go home today with a Skosh gift bag, as always. Um, Skosh is a big sponsor of the podcast, and uh, awesome. they make some really cool, cool products. So um, you'll get a bag of that stuff, and um, yeah. Awesome, Enjoy. Zach. I really appreciate your time and the opportunity to share a bit of my story. No problem. Thank you so much for your story. Cool. Appreciate it. Thank you.